You're listening to the Revenge of the Birds podcast, part of the SB Nation Podcast Network, hosted by Blake Murphy 7 and Johnny Touchdown. All about your Arizona Cardinals. Hello, welcome in. This is the Revenge of the Birds podcast, and uh, a different show tonight. Uh, my always present co host, the venerable John Venerable. Uh, sick and taking some time off, so it's actually going to be a bit of a unique solo show. It'll be pretty short as a result, um, but we've got a lot to talk about and discuss this week, and I say we, of course I mean I, but uh, with you and the listeners, uh, my name is Blake Murphy at Blake Murphy 7 um, writer on Revenge of the Birds and one of the co-hosts of this podcast. I wanted to kick things off at least just with a little bit of what we'll be talking about and previewing tonight. I'll be going over the results of the Browns-Cardinals game. Cardinals get a win, which is great news for for the fans, kind of a reward after a miserable home stretch for the most part this year. Also, we'll be going over the Terrell Suggs, the cut that was made with him, a few players headed to IR. Um, talk a bit about what the win overall means for the team, uh, previewing a little bit at least of the Seahawks game to wrap it up. Uh, so as a start, let's go over the first big news that happened this week, which was uh, the Terrell Suggs. He was released from the Arizona Cardinals late on Friday. Uh, kind of a unique little experience. You have Steve Keim go on with his radio show that he does in Arizona sports. Does that each Friday talks about usually some of the moves that have been made, what will be made. Uh, Suggs is released by the Cardinals. There was some news earlier in the week that perhaps they were going to move him around a bit. Some had wondered if he would move to potentially an inside linebacker spot. Uh, turns out, wasn't the case. Uh, was actually more likely he'd be moving to like an inside uh, defensive end position. <coughs> Excuse me there. So what I do at least want to talk about that is what exactly was the reason for uh, for the release? Uh, couldn't they have just played it out? Couldn't they have kept it even if it was a case where he was saying no? The answer seems to be that he's an old 37-year-old player. He's not a Larry Fitzgerald in terms of wanting to spend his whole career with one team and then hang it up where it was. He wanted to play for a contender. Seems that he underestimated the Baltimore Ravens, or perhaps it was just a money situation at least, where he leaves, goes to the uh, waiver wire, I should say at least, and as a result, he's now been claimed by the uh, Kansas City Chiefs, as many people know, are a potential Super Bowl contender. He, in some cases, may have wanted to go back to the Ravens. It'll be interesting to see if he reports or shows up, or if it's going to be a simple case of... Cardinals essentially making a mistake, not being nearly a competitive team, and not being a good fit for the player at this stage. It feels like what Kingsbury said, and I know there's been comments about Bart Scott saying, you know, stealing money from the Cardinals. I think that's fair and legitimate to wonder if the Cardinals, you know, they essentially signed him to a two-year $10 million deal with total guaranteed of $7 million. That's just... uh, That's... That's rough. The 
contract automatically voids for 2020 after the Super Bowl, so the Cardinals really don't give up that much at all. They really have only paid, just really paid him. What it does at least seem to look like for a lot of people is a missed opportunity to bring in a young guy like, whether it was retaining Marcus Goldman, he'd been kind of hurt in Arizona. Fans weren't too sad to see him go to New York. Uh, you know, bringing in a guy like a Shaq Barrett or even trying to be able to say, hey, let, let's move Hassan Reddick to this position from the get-go. Instead, you're now looking at Reddick uh, potentially, you know, coming back. Maybe he's going to be out for this week in Seattle. Maybe he comes back the last game of the year. But in your sample size, you're going to see what does it look like for Hassan Reddick to play full-time. It's kind of similar to what we've seen with Chase Edmonds. We asked, could Chase Edmonds support a starting role? And it looked like for about a game or so he could. And then next game around, he gets hurt and is not able to really crack the rest of the lineup. And uh, maybe not to say that the player themselves is too small in that sense, but there is something to be said for having a body and being able to take on an NFL-style starting workload. It's something we haven't seen Hassan Reddick be able to do from the defensive end position. We've seen him play throughout the season um, at a linebacker, and it's shown that he's been kind of a, a true tweener in the sense of he has not been able to read and react with the coverage aspect. He plays as a downhill type of athlete. So if you put him in a role where he's running off the edge, he's not going to be able to consistently get to the quarterback. You put him in a role where he's having to play pass coverage a lot, he's not going to be able to have the instincts to get there. Really, the only thing that he does, at least it seems to be overall, is going when you ask to get the quarterback on a pass drill because even his reactions as far as being able to be Around the football, tackling the ball carrier, he's not effective in it. You can bait him, whether it's on play action or whether it's a run misdirection. It's just not something that Hassan Reddick really has a skill set for. And as that result, if you're talking about taking a player who's going to be occasionally rushing off the edge and blitzing up the middle in a linebacker role, uh, you know, four to five times a game, and then making an impact on special teams, that's well-equipped. What it's not equipped is when you take that player, you know, obviously in the first round, have the expectations of we need this pick to hit. At this point, it's essentially a sunk cost for the Cardinals, and as a result, you kind of are seeing the same sunk cost for a guy like Terrell Suggs. Um, I, I wish nothing but the best for Suggs. I think it was a rough situation. He ends his time with the Cardinals. We'll, we'll always at least have a little moment to remember. Hey, remember... Suggs is on the Cardinals for a bit. No one's going to remember that. He finished out the season with only five and a half sacks, 37 total tackles, 14 combined for loss. He did have a, a bit of an impact as far as being able to make some tackles for loss, but you take a look at his stats throughout the week, and essentially outside of the one, I believe, Seattle game where he had eight tackles, things just tapered off for him. He had no stats, not a single stat or a tackle since the San Francisco 49ers game. That was on November 17th. Yikes. This was a poor signing to essentially overpay for a guy. And a lot of people want to just kind of dump on Steve Kime and go through this. A lot of the thought process ultimately, I think, hinges on poor planning on the Cardinals' part, not in terms of bringing in a guy like Terrell Suggs, but in changing the direction where I think their team was heading. Because if you look back and let's say, let's let's rewind time a bit. Head back to when Suggs was signed during the free agency period for the Cardinals. It went from free from February to March. You're talking about coming off of a team that signed Cliff Kingsbury to pair with a guy like Josh Rosen. 
to essentially develop him. And you look on the defensive side, you sign Terrell Suggs to be across from Chandler Jones, and then you also sign Nick Bosa's linebacking coach from Ohio State, uh, kind of would be his position coach. And you brought in Vance Joseph, who just had Bradley Chubb from a year ago, got him to double-digit sacks as a rookie with the top five pick. I think when you look at what Steve Kime had intended for the Arizona Cardinals, I think the picture that it paints is he wanted Cliff to fix and improve on the offense, and then at the number one pick on the defensive side, they would bring in Nick Bosa, develop him behind Terrell Suggs, and then as Suggs starts out the year, you work in a little bit more of Nick Bosa, and by the last six to eight games of the season, it's not Suggs who's going to be in the spot. He'd be in a depth role, and it'd be Bosa who would be starting and moving forward as the Cardinals' outside linebacker and main pass rusher. That did not turn out to be the case. I think you can take a look at with how Josh Rosen has done. You probably would be looking at a similar win total if you had kept Cliff Kingsbury and kept Josh Rosen. Maybe you have a little bit more on the defensive side because you've got two pass rushers, but ultimately I think you'd be talking about the Cardinals as a worse team and there'd be less optimism. You'd be hoping that Rosen would take a Mitch Trubisky or a Blake Bortles type step of moving forward, but the team structure would not be an offensive identity. It would be built around the defense, built around you know being able to have a run game and play action. And most of all, I think it would be built around uh, having Cliff essentially as the offensive coordinator and having Vance Joseph as, you know, for all intents and purposes, kind of your second head coach. What changed ultimately is that with the identity being built around a guy like Kyler Murray, it means that the defensive pieces now after Chandler Jones are going to be maybe not leading, but supplemental in a way. You want to build around a team like the Chiefs. You want to build around a team like the, I guess you could even look to the Seattle Seahawks in the present of being able to have functional pieces on defense that can slow up. You're not needing to have a legion of boom being able to put together a solid run game with a running back, and then essentially just looking at Russell Wilson and with the weapons that he has to uh, to win games. Now, there are going to be a lot more explosive plays, a lot more, uh, I guess you could say, overall scoring with the Cardinals just because of Cliff's mindset. But I, I think it does speak to show that the identity of the Arizona Cardinals from what Steve Kaima has wanted to build Ever since that 2016 year, you look at 2017, you see a rehash of the 20, uh, 2016 team with Carlos Dansby kind of filling that Terrell Suggs role for a guy like Hassan Reddick. And what happens? Turns out that Reddick was losing out snaps to Josh Bynes. Bynes takes over, ends up being your starting linebacker for next year. Reddick ends up struggling. It just shows that Steve Kime essentially tries to put things in place to build around a player in that identity of the team. And if that doesn't work out, then he doesn't have a lot of places to go, unfortunately. So it's rough to see what's happened with him. But the pattern that Kime has of bringing out a veteran who, you know, veterans are they're cheap. You didn't go out and, you know, sign a guy to a multi-million pass rushing contract or make a trade for a Jadavion Clowney. You got a guy who's cheap. Now what you'll be talking about for the Cardinals is, are you going to be looking for the partner for Chandler Jones in free agency this year with a name like a guy like Clowney? Or are you going to be talking about this is a 2021 Are we going to be talking about this in 
free agency of next year are going to be talking about this as, hey, you're going to be drafting the guy to potentially replace a Chandler Jones in the year after next. Because right now, unless the Cardinals, for somehow in some way, see all these other teams in front of them went out or that Chase Young falls to their pick, they're probably not going to be finding that partner to go along with Chandler Jones in the draft. It just doesn't seem to make sense from this standpoint, from the talent. Maybe things change as we get close to that one, but it seems very likely that the Cardinals' entire mindset changed from a defensive philosophy to an offensive one because of the draft selection of Kyler Murray. In that case, I don't think there's a lot of fans who are disappointed by that. I think what they are disappointed by is the resource allocation um, by this team, by this front office, was it was a swing and a miss. And what's unfortunate is that there's been a lot of those swings and a lot of those misses over the year. And it's led to the point where a lot of fans are having to just wonder, is, is this the right path going forward? And at this point, it's been brought up multiple times. It's a fair question. And I think it's something that until there's a fix that comes in place, until the Cardinals either find that guy. And it, it was a question before Chandler Jones, too. Are the Cardinals going to find a guy who can rush the passer who's not going to necessarily have to be a Dwight Freeney signing off of the street? They found that guy in Jones. They just have not been able to find a partner. And uh, it, it's unfortunate because you're now going to end up looking back on a lot of what could have been for this Cardinals team especially if bringing in a guy like Marcus Golden back, signing him maybe to a cheap three-year deal or even looking at a quick one-year deal, you're now going to always be wondering just a little bit of that what if, if the Cardinals had been able to find and lock up one of those guys long-term. I look at the 2016 year where you had Chandler Jones, Marcus Golden, Calais Campbell, led the NFL, not just the division, not just your own franchise, led the entire NFL in sacks. And over the next two years, that, unit that included Alex Okafor, Calais Campbell, Marcus Golden, and Chandler Jones. Um, or at least I should say Okafor, I believe, may have left a year sooner. But it was dismantled. You let Calais walk. You let Marcus walk after you. Granted, you did have an ACL tear, which severely inhibited Marcus's ability to come back. But it just shows and speaks to not really identifying the right players who are here. All right, let's go ahead and we'll take a uh, second here. And I want to talk about the Cardinals game against the Browns, we've broken down the Suggs enough. Let's talk about the Cardinals. I know some fans were probably ultimately disappointed by that to some regard. There's a couple of camps I know that are out there. Some of them may have goals aligned. One camp obviously is the camp that just wants to lose out so there's change. They feel that there's uh, a need to remove the defensive coordinator, the general manager, to be able to make a change, and that losing nine games straight would be the most effective way of change. And in that sense, some fans were disappointed, feeling that Steve Kime had potentially saved his job just by getting a another win, an improvement over last year's record. Um, the second camp wanted to lose out for a higher draft pick, essentially... Hey, tank away the season, hope that one of these two or three teams that are in front of you will win, and then you get a better draft pick, which, as we talked a bit about last year, the NFL in a lot of ways seems to work itself out better than the tanking practices that we see go on in the NBA. Remember, the Cardinals last year did not have the number one pick 
at least until the last three weeks of the year because up until the Raiders game, they were picking probably fourth, and then suddenly they got thrust up into that conversation but were behind the San Francisco 49ers. The Niners won a game with Nick Mullins at quarterback over the Seattle Seahawks, and that propelled the Cardinals back into that number one pick. Now, as far as things working themselves out, you can see that Niners, whether they had pick number one or pick number two, probably are taking Nick Bosa. They likely are not trading down. They loved the player and talent. But it's something to question or wonder about as a possibility if there was a team that would have wanted to move up or take Kyler Murray ahead of the Arizona Cardinals, who therefore didn't really have to hide their interest in Murray whatsoever and have a huge stunner on draft day or trade the pick. They were picking at number one, and no one was there to stop them or make a trade or threaten them or even, uh, God forbid, what if the Niners looked at uh, Kyler Murray and were like, oh, you know what, we're picking one, maybe... uh, Maybe we take this guy, we got Garoppolo for at least another year, see if we can trade him elsewhere. And then if you're the Cardinal, you're like, oh, 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 oh boy. But as far as when I say about the NFL working itself out, when you look at the teams that won last week, some of the teams that won were teams that were picking ahead or even behind the Arizona Cardinals. The New York Giants, who were the number two pick, they won. The... Detroit Lions were the one team that were tied with Arizona, lost. But the New York Jets at 5-9, and nine, Jacksonville's at 5-9, and nine, and Atlanta moved up to 5-9. and nine. So the Cardinals essentially are looking at not moving anything up or down in the NFL draft, which I think reassured a lot of fans. That's when I say that things kind of work themselves out now. Is there going to be some fear or paranoia from fans who will prefer to lose the last two games just to kind of keep their spot? And yes, I think that's going to be the case. The tie that Arizona has will obviously prevent them from being in the Chase Young conversation as we talked about, assuming he even declares as some news popped out this week. But it's something I think that fans can't worry about because as we talked about, the, the fact is that you don't really ever find a player that will drastically change the fortune of your franchise unless it's at the quarterback position. Like even you look back at a few draft years ago, one of the better tackles in the draft in Ronnie Staley, he went with like, what, the 16th pick in that draft? (laughs) You're talking about how there's good players that you can find, and in a good draft, you Don't have to worry as much unless you're picking, say, number one, or unless there's a specific player that you have in mind. After that, it doesn't matter a whole lot. Sometimes things just work themselves out. Not to say that they will, but, you know, you look at the 2016 draft, and a lot of people were wondering if Jalen Ramsey, who seemed like he was maybe a guy who was talented enough to go number one, there was no way he was going to be leaving the top four picks for that. And then you watched as... Two teams traded up for quarterbacks. You had Nick, uh, excuse me, Joey Bosa was drafted, and then Ezekiel Elliott went to Dallas, and suddenly, perhaps the best player in that draft went at number five. There's a lot of times where I think that as fans, people get an NBA, what I think is an NBA mentality of you got to tank, you got to get the best player. The only thing that can make your impact and change your franchise is by getting a better player and a better draft pick. Well, the thing is, in the NBA. 
There's five guys on the court. There's five guys on the other side. The NFL, there's 11. There's double the number of players. Ooh. Uh, yeah, that means that you're going to need to have a lot more talent than just one pick and just one player. Now, one pick and one player can make a huge impact. Just look at the Cardinals receiving situation since 2004. Taking a guy like Larry Fitzgerald is fantastic. But let's not go and pretend that Fitzgerald himself led to more winning for this franchise. The fact is that a quarterback is probably the easiest and most dynamic way to add wins to a franchise, and we've already seen that with Kyler and the fact that the Cardinals essentially have already won more games than last year. You can make an argument for the Detroit game as a moral victory. They may even have a shot in the upcoming Seattle game, which we'll get to. But I wanted to address that idea of when you're talking about you know, even the idea of tanking for players. We've seen teams trade up to get quarterbacks. We even saw it with the Cardinals and Josh Rosen. People were worried that year that they were finishing with a 8-8 eight and eight record because they were terrified they weren't going to get a quarterback. Now, sure, they didn't get a top one or a top two quarterback. Two teams traded up ahead of them to picks three and picks seven in order to be able to get that. And then they traded up to ten. So really, it didn't matter. And speaking of not mattering, how many of those teams, you know, wish they'd taken Lamar Jackson instead? And probably outside of Buffalo, maybe quite a few could have. Cardinals are one of those teams that didn't want him and passed on him, and it ultimately, I think, shows that the draft isn't something that you can rely on or bank on. And Cardinals fans should know that better than anyone. You see the first-round picks that were there with Steve Kime. A lot of people now are saying, well, it's Kime making the picks, so clearly they're going to be a bust. And I, I don't know how true that is. Maybe there's misdiagnosis or mischaracterization. You could definitely argue that with drafting Dayon Buchanan as a safety and then moving him to linebacker or Hassan Reddick. Uh, Humphreys obviously had some injury concerns coming out of college, and that was something that was maybe a bit underplayed. But ultimately, it's just a case of you're hoping to add a player and add a talent. You hit on the talent, that's exactly what you're supposed to do with the draft picks. And the Cardinals are picking high enough now where they're in a place, in a spot, which I think is interesting, where they could address playmakers, offensive line, defensive line potentially, with a guy like maybe some have talked about Derek Brown, but it's still there's great players you find up top there. There's also times where you can get a player like a Jonathan Cooper who's not a difference maker. And that was even an offensive line pick. People like saying Cardinals have to address the offensive line, and they did that rookie year. And they added a player who had no impact on the team. So I think that that's where people need to just take a step back and look at the big picture of it's not just a single draft pick that everyone's freaking out about. It's about overall time, overall process, overall being able to add more talent. And that's, I think, obviously why we've talked on this podcast about how there's concern about bringing Steve Kime back. And I think that 2020s, if he does return for that one, it's gonna be a uh, it's gonna be kind of a make or break type of thing because if the Cardinals end up with a five and eleven record after that year is done, show progress but not enough, then you kind of know that you know three strikes and you're out is kind of how Michael Bidwell has operated. You you saw it in 
2010 where they had that with Derek Anderson, the 2011 year with Cobb getting hurt, and then 2012, obviously we know how that ended with um, that nine-game losing streak up until the Lions win. Does that matter? The Lions win is very much from 2012 what I was reminded of in this game. It was a game where the team was sick of losing, so sick of losing that they stood up, they pushed back, and they overall dominated a opponent by putting together a solid defensive performance for the first time in a while. The Cardinals in that game, at least obviously, I believe, picked Stafford multiple times. It was a solid defensive performance, but what really was impressive in this game was the offense. The offense came out, drove right down the field on their first drive. It looked effortless, effortless. You were getting um, you know, 10-yard gains, 15-yard gains, rolling out. They just decided to run the ball. And I think for a lot of Cardinals fans, they had circled this Browns game from the beginning of the year because of the narratives coming in. The narrative of Baker versus Kyler, the narrative of a former Cardinals coach in Freddie Kitchens, even Baker and Cliff Kingsbury's falling out that they had when he was back at Texas Tech and Mayfield was back at Texas Tech as a freshman. But I think the main reason why a lot of Cardinals fans didn't sell their tickets and circled this game was because they wanted to see Steve Wilkes get his. They wanted to see Steve Wilkes and all that he talked about of the gap integrity, all that he talked about of the coaching, all of the blame that was assigned to the players. Essentially, they wanted to see him get his comeuppance where after national media trashed the Cardinals for giving up on him too soon, for going out of their way to fire him after one year, for the controversy that caused, for setting him up to fail, they wanted that justification to say, no, no, you don't understand how bad it was and he had to go. And to that respect, even that very first drive the Cardinals did, <laughs> that, I think, justified it for a lot of fans. And that's part of why it was encouraging to see. Now, what makes me at least confident in a lot of cases, you see Kyler didn't have, you know, the great stats that he did. He had 19-25, just over 200 yards to 219. He did throw a pick. It was a great read, bad throw, as they would say it, needs to recognize that linebackers in the NFL are going to be a little bit more reactive and have a goal of being able to normally disrupt that pass or have it go over their head. They'll pick that and take it back the other way. What this game to me was about was about two things. One was it was about, I guess you could say almost the, the death knell for David Johnson. You see... Uh, there's been questions, should you play Johnson, should you play Drake? The last few weeks, Drake has had all sorts of issues. You got to see in this game where he showed his decisive running, being able to run inside. Essentially, what you can say is being able to block and follow his blocks. All that he did was he took whatever he was assigned and he was able to execute it. Whereas David Johnson, when you look at that, there's two issues. That with One is the lack of explosion, which he just... It seems like that there's either some other type of hesitation or injury or the fact that he just is not the same back anymore. Something has happened, whether it's being run down or the decisive running. He just does not have the same explosion. You know, people talk, hey, you got a 15-yard gain, an 8-yard gain. You're driving down the field with Drake to give the ball to David Johnson. And he just gets the ball, starts running, and gets tackled from behind because he took on the ball just a little bit late. And the guy who's supposed to, you know, barely whiff on the tackle around the corner takes him down for a loss. 
And I think the transition that's going to happen this offseason is, and you know, I think uh, I think the Cardinals have probably sent some of this with David Johnson for a while. You can tell just for how many snaps they were getting with Edmonds in the preseason. Um, you could also see by just their trade for Kenyon Drake and the fact that they were talking about, hey, we want to sign this guy in 2020 to begin with. You don't talk about signing another running back who's a free agent to a deal when you, at least for what Drake is going to get paid, when you already have a guy you're confident in, in David Johnson. And I think that this is something that's been in the works, maybe even since what we saw in the preseason with David Johnson. I think the Cardinals have known for a while. He looks like he may be toast. Now, we say that, and then we can look at players who've left the Cardinals in the past, such as Tyron Matthew or a Calais Campbell, guys who... Uh, John Brown comes to mind as well. Guys who look like they've toast and have found new life. And maybe that's what David Johnson needs. And it does seem like that's what the Cardinals need. The, the Cardinals and John Brown were not going to be able to work out their differences. They weren't willing to pay Tony Jefferson uh, the money to essentially be the full-time featured safety here. Uh, sad, sad miss to think of if you could have paired him with a guy like a Buda Baker, but that's why they let him go and part of why they drafted Buda Baker, I guess you could say too. But it comes back to the fact that this league is about production and David Johnson is not producing. And when that's the case, you move on. The problem, of course, is that you might need to find the right market for him. You might need to uh, recognize that you're not going to get back what you want for him in a pick because of that contract. You might even have to give up a pick with that contract. And a lot of fans, I think, are not liking that approach and that idea because, you know, what you want, obviously, is value to be able to repair and build for the future. But sometimes the best way to build for the future is by subtraction. Not to say that David Johnson is the person, not to say that David Johnson as um, his character, that it's a problem at all. It's, maybe some of those tweets are a little problematic, but the main issue just seems to be that it's heading for an inevitable divorce. And for whatever reason, he's not the same player. The Cardinals need to get out to be able to reward other veterans who can produce. And in that regard, I think a place that we need to talk about a little bit that would be perfect would be the Miami Dolphins. The, the Cardinals, in effect, and here's kind of what I think that maybe you could say it's a mistake, but Johnson's contract could not be traded this season. You, you just weren't going to be able to do it. No one was going to take on the remainder of what it was. This upcoming offseason... The most of the incentives, at least, that you have are what's left in the contract. You get eight million, eight point five million, and obviously, as we've talked about in the past on the show, in trading him, you say, uh, and you spend only six million dollars. So whatever team takes him on and gets pretty much a two-year deal with six million dollars in the first year. That's not bad for a team that needs whether it's a starting running back or even just a three-down back or even just to use his receiving skills. And that's why I think that the Cardinals probably should have just, you know, you could argue that they probably should have just swapped Kenyon Drake and David Johnson, given them both new life and new legs. I think you could effectively look at it like that, where maybe Johnson is the fit that Miami's needed for adding a weapon who's a receiver, a guy you can check it down to, getting a bit of new life and fresh legs in a new spot where he has to assert himself. And Kenyon Drake, in coming to Arizona, got to be in a scheme where he got to just execute and do what he was called for, do what he was supposed to do, 
and be given enough touches and a featured role to be able to actually shine. He's always been an efficient back ever since he was in Miami. He gets about four-point yards per carry for his career. David Johnson, since 2016, he's been more of a 2.8 carry guy. Even in that 2017 season where he was after that leg injury, he still didn't seem to have the same burst, the same run. It was in the passing game that he was making plays. And I think that that 2016, maybe that injury in 2016 affected him, or maybe it's just we need to look at David Johnson as a guy who came into the league. He is fast, explosive. He had stuff figured out. And then when it came to having to take the next step and develop, whether that's reading blocks or being able to execute, maybe B.A. just built the offense around whatever Johnson was best suited for. And that was all that he could do. You couldn't take anything further. We know that there's been not just missed blocks or assignments. There's been areas. Johnson just... He's kind of been limited to that regard. So um, that wraps up some of the Drake talk. Drake had four touchdowns on the game. Um, I don't think that he's going to be one of those guys that you say, oh, yeah, this is our franchise back. We build around. We pay him. I think the Cardinals are going to have to recognize that you don't have to pay a running back like you did David Johnson because you've got Kyler Murray now. And with the read options, with his running ability, Drake only saw about six guys or so in the box from what I believe it was for a majority of his yards, Bob McManaman. And what that means, at least to me, is, hey, the air raid works in the run game, like how a lot of people thought where it's efficient. And secondly, it means that Steve Wilkes either didn't decide that he could load up the box or just content to say, hey, we're going to surrender against the run but we can't give up against the pass and he ended up unfortunately giving up both the only thing that didn't happen was a breakdown in coverage for a big play down the field as far as you know one of those like you know, 60 yard touchdowns that we saw at times with the cardinals the second thing i did want to talk about today was um patrick peterson if only patrick peterson could play the browns and odell beckham jr every week this was maybe a big step that the Cardinals needed, and some will basically be afraid that it's maybe a step toward keeping a Vance Joseph in the offseason. Maybe we'll, we'll see how these last two games go, but it seemed like this is one of the first times all season where effectively Patrick Peterson said, I want Odell, and Vance Joseph said, we're giving you Odell. And he stepped up to the table. Yeah, he stepped up to the plate and hit a home, maybe not a home run, I could say. I mean, Odell still had... I think it was 66 yards receiving, wasn't fully shut down, but a lot of those yards, I believe, did come, whether it's in garbage time or some of those other swing routes. There's definitely an argument to be made that Vance has not trusted Patrick Peterson to line him up in one-on-one -on -one coverage. Like Even when you look at the Saints game and Michael Thomas, there were plays where Peterson was not on Michael Thomas. You look at, and some of that maybe you just say, oh, well, they clearly didn't trust Patrick Peterson because you see how he's played coming off of the PED suspension about how he's not been focused, been dialed out. It seems to have always been Peterson's number one problem in his career is there's some plays where either it just seemed like he didn't put in the full effort into tackling or playing against the run or being able to be fully involved. But this game he was, and this game he looked every bit like the shutdown corner that Arizona has hoped that he would be. Next week, he's probably going to end up getting, whether it's a guy like a DK Metcalf, um, whether they put him onto a guy like Tyler Lockett, who's, you know, different from Odell Beckham Jr., and he's a small, shifty guy. That's given him a lot of trouble in the past. You can look at the Marquise Goodwin touchdown in 2018 for that matter. I should say at least, I believe that was 2017, actually, because that was in uh, Tyron Matthew. 
having to catch up to him, at least, as a speedster and Peterson just kind of blowing that from the line. That was 2017. I think a lot of fans at this point are out on Peterson because of the play, because of the comments. I will say after the game, in the interviews, he didn't have a big smile on his face. Well, He had played his best game of the season, but it wasn't like it was the joyous, jolly old Patrick Peterson was back. Maybe in every other aspect except that, but I think what we're reaching at least is a point where the Cardinals have to choose. Are they going to try to keep Peterson and work it out and hope that he signs a long-term deal? Or after this season, just say, hey, we know you've wanted to be gone. We're going to cut you loose. Be free. We'll find the best possible deal for you. Um, I think the goal, at least ultimately for them, would be to try to trade him to a team that benefits the Cardinals with being able to get a decent return on the invest on you know trading peterson and it would benefit peterson by going to a team that maybe can get to the playoffs a bit quicker if you can perhaps double stack picks in multiple years that could help you rebuild and recognize that yeah he'll probably be able to come back and still be a hall of fame level player he obviously deserves all of that but i wonder if the cardinals are wanting to just say no no we need to to win back peterson it's almost like you've got the the ex who's on the outs, you know, you're like, she's not showing up when you're like, hey, let's hang out. Oh, I don't know, I'm busy tonight and all of that stuff. You kind of know that you're on the outs, but you're not willing just yet to get there. That's what I think the Cardinals might be. That's exactly what it is. The Cardinals are like the, whether it's the boyfriend who things are on the rocks or even just the ex trying to get back together. That's how it is with them and Patrick Peterson. I think the Cardinals would love to sign Peterson to finish his career as a Cardinal. Even after his play went down, I think that there's still going to be a lot of that leadership and emotional aspect they want. But if that was going to be the case for an extension, you'd think they would have probably, you know, after he came back, played a few games, you'd think he would have signed it by now. His play, essentially, I think, a lot of that shown maybe it was something as simple as, oh, he has to figure out who he is without the PEDs, maybe it's something so simple as just the focus and the effort of trying to push for a win. Maybe it was just a motivational thing where something finally snapped in his head and he decided to go out and give it his all. And whatever case it was, we'll see what happens in the next two games. But my suspicion overall is that Unless Peterson decides, hey, I want to stay in Arizona, remain here, team seems to be on the up, I'll be able to sign a five-year deal, finish out my career here. I think the Cardinals have to decide, do we keep him on the team for next year? Maybe even if they feel like they're close, try to franchise tag him or something like that in 2021, which franchise tag and trading there would just uh, be a mess. Do you trade him now and say, hey, we could get a second or higher? Or do you then wait, hold on to him through the 2020 season? He goes and signs elsewhere. And then you get a comp pick at the end of 2021 for the 2022 NFL draft. That, that was how it happened with Calais Campbell. Remember, Calais Campbell left the Cardinals in 2016. Cardinals didn't get his pick until 2018 for the third round. It took two years from the time that he left to actually get return. That assumes also that you have a whole other season with Peterson playing at a high level where he'd sign one of those max contracts and you'd get the maximum third-round pick and not something like a fourth or a seventh or something happening. 
to where I think the Cardinals have to look at dealing him in the offseason, recognize, you know what, we need to build for the future. As a result, we can't pay this guy. We can get return on this uh, player here. I think that it'll be interesting if Peterson plays high the last two games. Maybe that boosts his value back up a little bit, and perhaps maybe that's what Arizona's wanted all along. Arizona's like, all right, you got to stop playing your way off of this team, off of this field. We're losing value here. We'll do you a solid, you do us a solid. Maybe it's something as simple as that. I I have no knowledge on that front, I know. What I do know is that Peterson picked off Baker Mayfield in the end zone, and that turned out to be, in my opinion, the difference in the game because the Cardinals gave up on average about 30 points a game, and the Browns only scored 24. They actually even needed that last end touchdown to Ricky Seals-Jones, another tight end burning them, which I think may be what spells the death of Vance Joseph is over the next two weeks when you see touchdowns to Jacob Hollister and Tyler Higbee again. That may be what spells the death of him is where they say, hey, you – you could say, hey, I don't have the talent for tight end. You can say, well, you couldn't stop one all season long. It was one of the worst that we had. It puts you in a bind because if you come back next year and no change happens, then uh, I, I would expect the Cardinals would bring in a potential few. This is kind of how I felt with that. With with Mike McCoy, they kept Byron Lefwich, didn't let him leave, and kind of viewed him as a potential future offensive coordinator, kind of, kind of almost hedging your bet a little bit. I don't think that they see Billy Davis as that guy because, as many said, if you saw him as an important enough play guy in that aspect, maybe there would have been more talk or rumblings of moving on from Joseph to a guy like Davis. So I think that what the Cardinals could do this offseason is they don't let Vance Joseph go, and I think they've wanted to keep a 3-4, keep consistency, not have a new system or scheme. But I think that if the Rams blow them out again in this last game and the defense looks bad, I think that they'll feel they have no choice. If they do decide to keep him, it would be the leash would be about a Mike McCoy level leash, maybe even shorter, where they would probably bring in some type of veteran defensive guy who could essentially take over and be the defensive coordinator next year if Vance Joseph gets fired and let go. It'll be tough because then you'll be spending a whole offseason building around Vance, his guys, his picks. And maybe with enough talent, he can succeed. We did see some good defensive play out of the Broncos. Um, some people even pointed to the San Francisco 49ers, who kept Robert Sala for a m- number of years and finally have seen success this year with that defensive coordinator. But it was also a case where Nick Chubb went off for well over 100 yards rushing. The only thing that really stopped him or held him back was the fact that Freddie Kitchens didn't run him well enough and you end up seeing the dysfunction that's happened from the Browns there's stories of people saying hey guys like uh come and get me that was what one people what uh I believe Mike Silver said about Odell Beckham Jr. um potentially saying that earlier also he said that it was Jarvis Landry who said that this game so some Cardinal fans like oh should we get Jarvis Landry I'd I'd like that I mean I I wouldn't want if you take a look at the contract I don't know if you'd want that for the production but even still whether it's real or not and Landry refuted it and saying why would I want to go to a team with a worse record than us and I'm like that's the perfect way to oosh the Cardinals because despite all the positivity despite being able to blow out a team and essentially in a lot of ways be able to earn earn I guess back a bit of the trust of the fans and this is a team that's on the up this is a team that is taking steps forward you still get that oosh. You still get the fact that the Browns have a better record than you, and they had a, you know, you've had a tougher schedule in part, but 
mostly because you just lost to a couple of sucky teams. The team lost that hurts the worst is the Bucks loss hurts because the defense gave up. And then the other one I think that got away from you is um, the Lions game at the beginning of the season. But ultimately, you're right. This is this is not a good football team because they're not winning those close wins. Um, I also think that Kenyon, uh, Kenyon Drake's performance essentially almost being mirrored by Nick Chubb, although it was clearly the passing game got Drake down into the end zone. Chubb got there on his own. He had 127 yards with one touchdown, only had 17 carries. Mayfield, meanwhile, threw the ball 43 times, and some of that's what happens when the Cardinals, you get in front, the other team has to play catch-up. And that's one thing I loved about this game was it showed you what the Cardinals could be. It showed you what people had hoped and wanted for this team all year. You finally got that in a game. The defense made enough plays to be able to hold the opposing team to under 30 points. That's that's all you kind of needed was, hey, you can score 24, you can score 21, you can score 27. But as long as your offense can put up 30 points and you can hold them underneath, then you're going to win a lot of games in the NFL. Cardinals to this point this year have not been able to do that. They've not been able to score 30 points. They've been closer to probably about you know, 26 or so on the year. They've given up 30 points on average. That'll get you every time. But in this game, they came out, they scored in the first quarter, and then you had the big run from Kyler Murray, which set up that touchdown. It was an electric run. He maybe could have scored if he sticks it on the outside. And then the Cardinals end up going into the half with a 21-10 lead. Now, the Browns come out of the half. They drive down the field and score a touchdown. And suddenly you're like, oh, boy, 21-17, here, here we go again. It's that second half. And credit, the Cardinals' offense is able to put together another touchdown drive in the third quarter. It was um, essentially, I believe, at least from what I remember, it wasn't from the turnover. Um, let me double-check here over for the – got the play-by-play in front of me here because this is kind of the big turning point of the game. Outside of the Patrick Peterson – Interception, which is what got the Cardinals up. Uh, the Cardinals went basically and were able to force the Browns to do a three and out. Or it was an incomplete pass to Jar- Jar- Jarvis Landry. And then in six plays, over three minutes, you basically had a uh, drive that started at Arizona's 39. You had a pass to Demir Bird, at least for that one, on the comeback route. You had a... You know, kind of dink and dunk down for the most part. And then a short pass left, at least for five yards. You just dink and dunk down the field, essentially. Murray ran around the end for two yards. The big play overall was, and this is the play of the game, was Cliff Kingsbury challenging that defensive pass interference on the end zone shot to Christian Kirk. That really turned it from a field goal into the ball at the one. And a lot of people are like, oh, this is gonna get over this isn't gonna get overturned. Well, the last three to four weeks, if you watch it, ever since Cliff Kingsbury's first DPI was challenged, it's almost like the NFL got it. Almost like someone passed it on. Almost like I said, hey, like this is obvious. And as once the NFL seemed to know what they had to look for in the DPI, coaches have been able to challenge it and get it. They've been able to challenge and say, hey, this is defensive pass interference. They go back and say, yep, that it was, and they reassign it. That's something that I think has changed. That's why a lot of people were saying they're surprised. I was like, nope, that, that will be called. And the Cardinals score will go up 28-17. The pl- next play and the next drive, the Browns have a chance, a chance. And this is what's unfortunate about the Browns. Despite the fact that Baker played a bad game, despite the fact that they weren't able to get the ball to Odell, and that Jarvis, essentially, I believe, had only about 60 receiving yards or so in the game. Despite all of that, the Browns, because of the Cardinals' defense, have a chance to kick a field goal 
and be able to go up on the Cardinals, uh, excuse me, uh, go down by eight to the Cardinals. And they missed it. And that was essentially just the deflation of the sideline where you just can see that it's been a huge destruction of from offense to defense to special teams, from him to Wilkes to everyone. The Browns just need new leadership overall. Like maybe even from the top down, maybe even you start looking at a guy like John Dorsey and say, why are you trying to keep Freddie Kitchens for 2020? I have a feeling that the Browns are playing the Ravens this week. It's possible this is kind of their Seattle Seahawks type of game that will inspire the ownership group to be like, all right, this is going nowhere. The GM wants to keep this guy. What what are we doing here? What I love was the Cardinals, after that missed field goal, they could have just, you know, gone three and out and then given it back to the Browns and had a chance, but no. They went on a nice long drive with that one all the way going down. It wasn't like it was, you know, super simple. You handed the ball off to Kenyon Drake. He had short passes around the middle. You had... Um, uh, you know, uh, short passes to Christian Kirk, 10-yard runs at the middle, and then you were essentially at second and one at Cleveland 17. You done a read option run to Kenyon Drake. He runs around the corner and scores his fourth touchdown of the game. And that was it. It was game over. The Cardinals put them away, which is something they've not been able to do on offense all season long. Sure, it took Steve Wilk's defense to do it, but it's a step forward. And so for all the fans, I think, who are out there who are wondering, like... This is where we'll shift into the kind part of the conversation. Who are like, I'm terrified of this team next year with Steve Kime at the helm. I want them to lose out to be able to have either a better pick or to be able to just make a change. What this team, I think, ultimately needed was reassurance and confidence in their quarterback, in their head coach, in their team to get a win like this, to say, hey, this is who we could be, to be able to use this as a teaching moment. When we stay play smart, we execute we can run the ball. Our receivers are able to make plays. We can essentially steamroll teams because of the guy that we have at quarterback. And that's what it's about. You've seen teams that have guys like Bill Polian or even teams that whiffed on multiple first-round draft picks and trades. Remember, Seattle traded away a good player for Percy Harvin. Didn't work out. They then traded away Max Unger, who was a Pro Bowl center, to the Saints for Jimmy Graham. Those were two trades that could sink a franchise. Imagine if the Cardinals had made those trades and they had had that lack of production. It could have sunk your franchise. People would be up in arms about it. But because they have Russell Wilson, it didn't matter. And that's what I think Cardinals fans need to recognize. Not to say that everything's always going to be hunky-dory and perfect, but that if the Cardinals have the most important piece and they have a head coach who can build around that quarterback and an offense in that regard... We'll see if Cliff can end up taking the step forward, obviously, in the next few years, if he's going to you know, be able to join some of those elite coaching ranks or if he's going to end up remaining more of that, you know, McVay kind of guy who's great play caller, game designer. But when it comes to being a head coach, there's definitely a few issues. We'll, we'll see how that goes over the next few years. But because you've got a guy like Kyler Murray, I think that, and this is why I've even argued, I don't know if you can make maybe the argument to keep Steve Keim. But I think that you can at least say that because you've got Murray, it's not like it's going to be this impossible scenario where you're going to be looking at this team for the next four to five years and saying, this is just absolutely pathetic. They at least made the right move, whether that was including Kimes' involvement or aside from him. In that case, I think it doesn't matter because at some point in the NFL, you will have to produce... Um, and I don't think that Steve Kime is going to be there forever. If he stays, produces, has a solid draft class, gets some solid picks, and the Cardinals are a playoff team next year, 
well, he, he's in charge of a lot of those choices. I don't know if you can say it's totally lucky. Don't know if you can say that it's not luck either. But in that regard, I think at least it shows the optimism that you have of how important that position is. And you've got a guy who could potentially be a star at the position. And as a result, I think that fans need to, on one hand, not underrate the fact that despite there's been all the losing, the Cardinals, I think, at least showed in this game that they can take a step forward. and Hopefully they can build on that into the next two games. But let's uh, wrap it up at least and talk about this with the... Um, uh, I know they had the two guys who went to IR, and Tanner Vallejo went to IR. And um, I believe it was uh, – I'll have to double-check at least for that one. But you're probably going to see a little bit of Ontarius Dora at outside linebacker and then at inside linebacker. It's a bummer because Vallejo was actually, you know, looking pretty good for a while. But what I think that you have to talk about is the two things that are left for the Cardinals that we haven't discussed, which is the Seattle Seahawks game – and the Pro Bowl nods. Chandler Jones, obvious Pro Bowler, underrated. He's not going to make all pro this year. But he is going to end up being a guy who gets a little bit of credit for that one. He's still rated and seen highly well around the league. He's under contract through 2021. The Cardinals have about two years left with him. We'll probably start looking at potentially extending him. And he seems like he's on the track to be a, a ring of honor type player for them. But um, you know, Tanner Vallejo and Kevin... Peterson were on IR. More playing time for Chris Jones, more playing time for Byron Murphy, who Cliff Kingsbury said has been playing outside a lot. They want him to be in the slot. They feel like that he's, in that sense, you know, you look at the guy like the Tyron Matthew and the Buda Baker. The Cardinals and their defensive were locked down at the end of 2017 when they had Buda Baker and Tyron Matthew roaming around the field making plays at the nickel and at the free safety position. And I think that's what they wanted to see with Byron Murphy. Byron's led up a lot of touchdowns this year. Some of that's been because I think he's been on the outside, which isn't maybe his best fit. But Patrick Peterson gave up a lot of touchdowns his rookie year as a corner, too. I think it's a learning experience. And fans, um, when you look at that context of how rookie corners do their first year versus their second year, very rarely do they come in and become a lockdown corner from the start. Peterson's biggest impact was in his punt returns as a rookie. It was years two through eight that he had his biggest impact overall. So anyway, we'll see a bit more, obviously, of Chris Jones. I think it's unfortunate because Kevin Peterson, he'd played well enough and was executing his assignments well enough um, to be able to be in that starting role. Jones, at least, as we've seen, has been a guy that teams have targeted a bit, and we'll see how that turns out against the Seahawks. Um, and then, But speaking of the corner and the safety and even the Buda Bakers, it was good to see Buddha for when you talk about the early struggle and the start that he had to finally find his role more in the box and even in coverage. I think the George Kittle game had a lot to do with him getting nationally recognized where people are watching him make some breakups on plays, being able to tackle. He had a baller game in their only nationally televised game, and it might have been the game that, despite falling down on a George Kittle touchdown, got him the Pro Bowl berth. There's a lot of respect for him around the league. He's already been there. And well, people have commented on the irony of, you know, a guy like Buda Baker and Chandler Jones who are on the defensive side and the 32nd ranked passing defense getting into the Pro Bowl. It speaks to me that this defense has talent, and I would point out at least that perhaps it hasn't been used to the best of its ability under a guy like Vance Joseph. And maybe some of that changed in this game, but it does at least to me speak volumes about how Cardinals only have two of those players, it seems maybe three if you count Hicks, and then Murphy and you're moving forward. 
everyone else is kind of replaceable at this point. You know and have your core of guys. If you want to be able to go ahead and try to add to that core by saying Peterson is not one of those guys in the next two years or so and you want to trade him, sure. He wasn't Pro Bowl eligible this year no matter what. He's play. He wouldn't have made the Pro Bowl this year even if he was eligible. But at least it shows that the Cardinals are not as far off where this defense is like lacking any type of playmakers whatsoever, any type of identity. And that makes me excited for them to be able to spend and add a few players for that one. Maybe, hopefully, if you can hit on a, a day two or a day three pick if you spend it on defense. I will be excited to see what the Cardinals' defense could look like, even if it's even if it's year two with Vance Joseph. The expectation is that they'll at least have to take some sort of step forward, and whether that's because, you know, whether Vance leaves or if he returns, they add more talent, more pieces. And even if they don't improve for a while, you at least know that the Cardinals will not have the patience, I think, to give it a full second year there would at least be someone else who'd take over and you would have to see at least some sort of improvement. Now, what does Steve Kimes' position and the rest of the season have to do? And this is where it gets tricky because in previewing the Seahawks game, last time they played, the Seahawks had that Jadavian Clowney fumble six. I believe it was pick six, actually. I should say, excuse me. And the Cardinals got down 17-0, couldn't bounce back. This game is going to be on the road in Seattle. The Cardinals have played better on the road than at home. The 12s is, you know maybe a different place in that regard. Cardinals have always played them well each year. Even last year, it took a dropped completion by Trent Sherfield to kick the Cardinals out of field goal, uh, to force, I think, a field goal at least, and give Russell Wilson time to march down the field and win the game in the final game of the year. Cardinals play Seattle tough pretty much almost every time. This is one of those games where I feel like that either the Cardinals will come out and play hard, Seattle will... You know, let them back into the game. Their team has been, you know, in a lot of close and one-score games this year. Or this is one of those games where if Seattle comes out, punches them in the mouth, it could very well turn into a similar thing to the Rams game where you get down early, you're forcing Kyler to throw, they're able to pin their ears back. It's a harsh environment on the road. It's going to be freezing cold. This could be one of those games that gets sideways. I don't know what's going to happen in this game. I believe what we'll see, at least hopefully, is um, you, what you want to see is my three things. I want to see the Cardinals keep it close, be able to be competitive, play them like you would Seattle. If you can get the win, fantastic. If you can do that, then that would at least, I think, two wins in a row would cement to a lot of fans. We're building something here. Things are looking well. I think a lot of fans, at least, will still want to see the general manager fired, but there will at least be more confidence than, hey, do we know that we even have the right coach? Do we know that we have, you know... This quarterback is going to work. I think it would give a lot of confidence to see them upset Seattle. But I just want to see them keep it close. Make it where it ends as a seven-score game. You can talk about taking that next step next year. What I think will happen in this game is I would pick Seattle 33-23 is what I have as a score prediction. I think that this is a game that's too important for Seattle, and I don't see the Cardinals on defense having enough weapons to be able to stop unless they can, um, unless they can find a way to force a turnover to whether it's Chris Carson fumble or being able to see Peterson get a pick for maybe a pass intended for DK Metcalf. I think the difference in this game will be Patrick Peterson. If he gets matched up on either Lockett or Metcalf to take away the deep pass, where let's say you lock down Peterson on Metcalf, there's deep plays on the outside, can't go to him, he's not open or he's breaking up passes. You can double up a guy like Tyler Lockett and force Russell Wilson to beat you with his arm where Chris Carson isn't being able to churn off, you know, these 20-yard gains, even if you do end up getting Nick Chubb-like uh, numbers from Chris Carson and Bruns, 
as long as the offensive side of Murray is able to have uh, enough of a run game, enough of guys making passes to drive down the field and convert in the red zone like they did, we'll see if that big target they had in Dan Arnold pops its head back up again. Then I think you've got a chance in this game to win. If you aren't able to do that, you come out slow. You had the win this last week. The Seahawks played a tough game to a close win last week. Maybe this is a game where it gets a little bit sideways, and that would be concerning, especially before a Rams game on the road where you've not been able to um, move away from your average, your average of getting outscored 33-7. to Because if the Cardinals end up getting behind, say, 17-0 to the Seahawks at the end of, say, halfway through the second quarter, that's going to be a real rough spot for them to be in the second half because then you're going to start to feel, oh, gosh, this is here we go again. And then you go into that finale against the Rams. And if you get blown out again, then maybe this Browns win doesn't matter for Steve Kime and the job security. Maybe, And maybe it never mattered to begin with. Maybe the Cardinals could lose 58-0 the last two games and Steve Kime would still be the general manager heading into next year. It's, it's possible that with the new and the turnover and all of that, that Michael Bidwell wants to give three strikes. And maybe he should be considering 2017 and 2018 strikes, maybe 2016 even. The fact is, is that he has not chosen to view those as strikes for effective reasons. And maybe it's just trusting kind of with the new direction. You give it two to three years, see how it goes. And they've used up two of those years. Maybe 2020 is a decision. But if you're a fan, I wouldn't worry as much about about feeling like the Cardinals have to lose these games. But if they do end up getting blown out overmatched and we see that the Browns game was much more about the Browns and the Cardinals, then I think that will be an answer, hopefully, to Michael Bidwell. But my expectation, at least, is that we'll see how the Seattle game goes. Seattle, historically, against the Cardinals, they've always played them pretty well and pretty close. Um, even this season, Seattle's played a lot of close games. I wish I could pick the Cardinals to win on Sunday. I wish I could say that they would build on this, but I just don't see this team having the talent, desire, or even the personnel enough to take that extra step forward to be able to win two games in a row, especially against a team with a much bigger record. Now, if they can, then I think you're going to be starting to look at this as closer to that 2013 season with less wins, but a lot of growing progress foreshadowing what could come. Well, that'll about wrap that up here for this episode. Um, Uh, Thanks again for listening to the Revenge of the Birds podcast. Uh, Next week will be a little bit tricky. I think what we'll probably do at least is um, I'll likely record early in the week and then drop the episode, um, schedule it for later in the week, uh, after Christmas and the holiday. That way there'll be at least plenty of time for people with their friends and loved ones. Um, We'll see if John, he's been sick, unfortunately, this week. We're hoping that he gets better. You can follow him at Johnny Touchdown. He's still active on Twitter um, despite the illness. You can follow me on Twitter at BlakeMurphy7. And make sure you're following the podcast account at ROTBPod. You can listen on RevengeOfTheBirds.com, as well as um, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, of course, Spotify Radio, um, even apps like Stitcher and Himalaya. And thanks again, Cardinals fans. We'll see you next time. Remember, we've got two games left of Kyler Murray and this Murray Mania. Um, It's a treat just to be able to watch him play the football. Let's enjoy these last two games, at least on the road as fans, and get to that 2020 offseason. Thanks again, guys. Have a good one.